1 Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of Solomon, which we read about in our text this morning, is the stuff of legend. Solomon was, according to the Bible, the wisest man who ever lived, which is saying a lot. Two chapters before this one in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, chapter 2, sorry, the royal historian shares with us the story of how Solomon gained this wisdom, how he became so wise. God appears to Solomon in a dream and says, ask for whatever you want me to give to you. And the rest of the story, as they say, is history. The young Solomon, the newly crowned king, asks for wisdom. And God is pleased with this request. So pleased that he even gives Solomon all the things that Solomon didn't ask for, wealth and power and family well. Wisdom is an important theme throughout the scriptures. And Solomon's story is part of that, but it's a big part of that. We call the whole middle part of the Old Testament, between the history and the prophets, wisdom literature. And much of it, maybe most of it, is written by Solomon. A few of the Psalms, most of the Proverbs, and the shorter books of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, all written by this great king. And scripture's teachings on wisdom, when you look at the big picture, are really incredible. When we look at what the Bible teaches about wisdom, we find that wisdom is about finding and following the will of God himself. Wisdom is found in obedience to God's law, trust in God's faithful promises. Wisdom points us to God, even unites us to God. Throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a noble woman who consistently points people to God. When we look at scripture's teachings on, the new, on wisdom in light of the New Testament, we're told in 1 Corinthians that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. And so in a biblical sense, in a very real way, to have wisdom, 
is to have Christ. To follow wisdom is to follow Jesus. And that might make us a little bit uncomfortable with the way that our passage for today is written. Because the prophet in this passage describes Solomon's great wisdom, his mastery of this virtue that points us to God, that unites us with Christ. And we read that Solomon not only wrote many proverbs and psalms, but that the breadth of his wisdom was shown in his knowledge of the creation. He spoke about plant life from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds reptiles, and fish. And because of this, people from all nations came to listen to his wisdom. It might seem backwards to us, a confusion of worldly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. We, we almost expect the prophet to switch it around. That would make this text easier for us, I think. Solomon had worldly wisdom. He knew about plants and animals and birds and fish. But more importantly, he had spiritual wisdom. His teachings pointed people to God. But that's not what the author of Kings does. The way that he puts it, it almost seems like Solomon's Proverbs and Psalms, the part of his wisdom credentials that are actually included in Scripture, they're not really emphasized. Like, it's almost like the author is saying, yeah, sure, he wrote a lot of Proverbs and some Psalms, but this guy was wise. He knew about plants. He knew about animals. And all the nations on the earth sent their wise men to sit, at his, to sit at his feet and learn about science. And we might ask, what do plants have to do with divine wisdom? What do trees have to do with the gospel? What does knowledge about nature have to do with my personal relationship with Jesus Christ? The truth of the matter is that we live in a unique time in the history of Christianity. The past 150 years or so have seen a unique development in the history of the Christian understanding of creation. Many Christians today have a very dim view of the creation. The concerns of environmentalism are not a great concern to those who believe the gospel because this world is going to be destroyed when Jesus returns. In fact, some Christians proclaim with great certainty that the sooner we destroy the environment, the sooner Jesus will come again to finish the job. I disagree with that. You might have guessed. This attitude toward the creation comes from a new teaching in Christianity called dispensationalism. It's a big word. Can everybody say that? Dispensationalism. dispensationalism. Very good. I'm going to make theologians of you yet. Dispensationalism was a new teaching that arose in the late 19th, early 20th century and rose to prominence with publications like the Schofield Study Bible in the early 1900s, Hale Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth in the 1970s, and the Left Behind series, which some of you might have heard of, uh, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in the 90s and 2000s. Dispensationalism teaches that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, 
And then eventually Jesus will come again and all Christians will be raptured up from the earth into heaven and the world will descend into total chaos before Jesus comes again to rule in the millennium before he destroys the world to make it all over again from scratch. And this interpretation of the end times has become so widespread that many Christians think that this is what the church has always taught. But really, dispensationalism is a fairly new teaching that arose just over a hundred years ago. It's a teaching that kind of cartwheels through the Bible without much regard for uh, what texts meant in their original cultural and literary contexts. You take a few chapters from Revelation, a chapter from Daniel, a verse from Ezekiel, some of Jesus' teachings from Matthew and Mark, a verse from 1 Thessalonians, a quote from 1 Peter, and you put them all together in a new order, and you have a very neat and tidy schedule for the end of the world. And at this point, you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with how we treat the environment? But the truth of the matter, and a truth that Christians have always recognized, is that what we believe about the end of the world has a backward effect that shapes our understanding of all of history. Christians who believe that God will destroy this world will not have any motivation to care for it. In fact, it even affects their interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, where God commands the first humans to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And so for Christians who believe in dispensationalism, their understanding of this passage is that humankind ought to fill the earth to the exclusion of the rest of creation, that humankind ought to subdue the earth by taking advantage of its resources for our own benefit, that humankind ought to rule over all living things in a way that benefits us. But the big picture of scripture does not present this kind of attitude toward creation. God's command to humankind in Genesis 1 and 2 is to rule over all creatures in a way that a king rules over his subjects. Not tyrannically, but in a way that secures and, and, and ensures their flourishing. God commands humanity to subdue the earth, not by stripping it of its resources, but by countering the forces of chaos that wreak destruction on God's good earth. God commands humanity in Genesis 2 to tend to and care for the creation he has made. And this comes from what I think is a much more biblical interpretation of the end of all things, an interpretation that Christians have preached since the beginning of the faith. That when Christ returns, the world will not be destroyed with fire, but refined with fire, purified by the transforming fire of the Holy Spirit. The world will not be laid bare in the sense of being laid waste. The world will be laid bare in the sense that all things will be revealed. Because our God is not the kind of God who destroys the things he loves. Our God is not the kind of God who gives up on the things he has made. Our God is faithful and true, long-suffering, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. In the Reformed understanding, we do not see the earth as our playground, or our pool, or our toy. We see the earth as God's masterpiece, which he is working to redeem 
to restore. The Belgian Confession, Article 2, tells us that alongside Holy Scripture, creation is one of the two ways by which we come to know God. The universe is before our eyes, like a beautiful book, in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. The earth is God's masterpiece, and we are its stewards. One Christian writer says that the Christian in creation is like a curator at the museum. The museum is full of artifacts. The curator does not own any of them, but is entrusted with caring for all of them. Some of the pieces in the museum are very valuable and well-known, and everybody comes to see them every day that the museum is open. But other pieces are not well-known and may be kept in storage or archives. But the curator cares for them all because he is entrusted with their care. The creation is God's masterpiece, and we are its stewards. And this is vital to our understanding of the gospel because it is vital to our relationship with God. As the evangelical theologian Francis Schaeffer once said, if I'm going to be in right relationship with God, I should treat the things he's made the same way he treats them. Despite Western Christianity's relationship with creation. It's encouraging to know that we do have dedicated people, both here at home and around the world, who are involved in the work of caring for God's good earth. And I'd encourage you to reach out and speak with some of them about their love for the creation that God has made. And I'm sorry, I did not ask people for permission, but I've included some specific names in my sermon, so forgive me if I embarrass you too much. Jim Ramon cleans up trash along Blackner Boulevard every morning on his daily walk. Michaela Flickema climbed the CN Tower this year to raise money for the protection of endangered species. Richard Dykstra traveled to Cambodia this year to see the work that World Renew is involved with in training indigenous farmers to use sustainable agricultural practices. We have in our fellowship neuroscientists and lab technicians and environmental specialists and science teachers and doctors and gardeners and farmers and all sorts of people who are involved in the work of caring for God's good earth. So let us give thanks to God for these faithful stewards who teach us all to love what God has made. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said.